The scripture reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 15, verses 1 through 21. It can be found on page 923 in the Black Bibles. But some men came down from Judea, where they were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversation of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. <clears throat> and with these words, the prophets, the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jackson Holland, and as I said earlier, great to be with y'all this morning. Particular welcome if this is one of your first times at Christ the King. Love having you here. One of the things you should know about our church is uh, we are from the tradition of the Protestant Reformation from the 16th century. One of the rallying cries of the Protestant Reformation was sola scriptura. In other words, the Bible is the source of authority for Christian faith and practice. And that's something that we believe here at this church, but one of the places that that's really challenging is that it's not just part of the Bible that is the source of authority for Christian faith and practice. We believe it's all of the Bible. All of the scriptures are God-breathed and are useful for teaching and for correcting. And that's part of what the church here in Acts is struggling with and, and is having a reckoning over. 
And so let's pray and ask that God would help us as we gather around his scripture together to understand and to see what he's up to and our need for him. So let's pray. Father, we come to you now, um, and first we come to you as, as um, brothers and sisters uh, who are worshiping you on this day, united to our brothers and sisters all across the world, and, and we pray particularly for those in war-torn areas like Ukraine right now, Lord. We pray that you would be near to our brothers and sisters, um, to those who have been pressed out of their homeland and who are now refugees and we ask that you would be caring for them and that you would be using your church all over the world to shine as a light in the midst of uh, in the midst of trouble and trial Lord we ask now that as we consider this trouble and trial that um, that was met with the church in the first century that you would help us to understand how we might live in light of your grace in the 21st century And we ask that you would help us now by the power of your spirit and in Jesus' name. Amen. So our our sermon title today is Gospel Party Crashers. There is a party crash that happens in this passage. Um, So for outline takers, note takers, um, first point is gospel party crashers. And then second, any good party, it's a really good party, needs security guards. So gospel security guards. And then third, gospel hosts. Gospel hosts. Um, my, uh, one of my buddies, some of you may remember him, he came and preached here at my installation service back in August. His name is Crawford. He's an RUF campus minister. He served at Duke, and now he's at Stanford. Yeah, real, real, yeah, real smart guy. He, uh, he told me about a young woman that was in his group, and they were kind of surprised that she had been coming. She was a lesbian. She was an atheist, and yet... She just liked their group and the way that they had welcomed her. And so she'd been coming for several months and he, they'd, been, they'd been praying for her, that God would be at work in his, in his life. And meanwhile, one of his old seminary professors, a, name, a man named Dr. Kelly, sent out an email to many of his former students and um, peers. And Dr. Kelly does this fairly regularly. He has a day of prayer and he'll ask people, hey, if there's some... Something that you want me to pray about or for all of us in this network to pray about, share it and I'll send out the prayer list and we'll have a day of prayer. And so Crawford's wife, Rachel, had been thinking about Jackie and praying for her. So she just wrote Jackie's name and a little bit about her, sent it into Dr. Kelly and kind of forgot about it until, you know, about a month later the day of prayer came and um, Rachel spent some time praying for all these different people on the list and praying for Jackie and Crawford comes home later that day and he's asking her about her day. And she said, oh, it was Dr. Kelly's um, day of prayer today. We spent some time praying for things. And Crawford's like, was there anything that you asked her to pray about? And she said, well, I asked people to be praying about Jackie. And Crawford just started laughing. And she's like, why are you laughing? He said, I had coffee with Jackie today and she became a Christian today. (laughs) Isn't it great to have reminders like that? You know, that that God just really is at work and that the gospel is true and it's for all kinds of people. That's what's happening here in this passage. This incredible reminder filled with all kinds of incredible testimonies of God reaching all kinds of people that the early church would have never imagined 
being reached. And in verse four, you see that it's joyful. Paul and Barnabas's testimony of what God has been doing fills the family of God with joy. Because all of these kinds, new kinds of people are becoming Christians. You see, it's quite different from what had happened in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, Pentecost does happen. And all of these different languages are spoken. And the gospel is heard in all of these different tongues. But the people who hear that message were people who were from the Jewish diaspora who had come for the Feast of Pentecost. So while they were maybe ethnically, or while maybe they were from different countries, they were all from the same kind of ethnic culture. And even, even those among them that maybe weren't ethnically Jewish at Pentecost were what, were, what we'd be called God-fearers, Gentiles who were following the, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But what's happening now is that in distant, far-off lands, people with vastly different cultural sensibilities that would have been gathered, the people who had the same cultural sensibilities in Jerusalem, now there's people with all kinds of different cultures and ethnicities and backgrounds who are hearing about the good news of Jesus. And it's a gospel party. And it's creating all kinds of joy as people are hearing about the saving grace of Jesus. That you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And as people who are living in like a pagan world where the gods, their gods were angry gods that you had to serve or you were gonna be smitten, they're hearing about this God who has come to serve, who was smitten for them, who extends grace to them, and it is just changing. It's changing the world. And this Gentile, this Gentile mission that started as a trickle in the early chapters of the book of Acts has now become a torrent. And this torrent of Gentiles who are coming into the church are bringing with them their own cultures, their own sensibilities, even their own dining practices, and for some people, this is a problem. And so the party crashers come in verse one. People from Jerusalem who've been hearing about all that's going on far off, they show up. And we find out later in verse 24 that when the church of Jerusalem writes a letter to the folks in Antioch, they say, they're like, hey, we didn't send them. They went of their own accord. They come, they, but, but they've heard about what's going on. And so they come and crash the party. And here's the thing. Sometimes the best party crashers are those that you would least expect. A friend of mine runs a wedding venue in Mississippi. And they said, they told me that last year, the police called them and said, hey, we, we need you to check your surveillance cameras because there is a woman who's been going around and stealing from brides and grooms at their weddings. And so they pull up their surveillance footage and sure enough, in walks somebody that everyone probably thought was sweet great Aunt Muriel. In her nice little pink sweater and she's just kind of shuffling in, she's waving to people. And then once she kind of gets the lay of the land, she begins pilfering the place on the footage, grabbing 
gifts, taking them out, taking, you know, look, probably looks like she's loading the car, helping them out. She had done this in five states. Because no one saw Great Aunt Muriel coming, right? She looks like the sweet church lady that you would never expect. And that's who crashes this party. The sweet church-looking people. The Pharisees. The Pharisees, are, we read, if you've read some of the Bible, you've seen how Jesus interacts with the Pharisees, it's easy for us to imagine like the Pharisees are like, oh, obviously, bad guys. That's not how people in the first century would have thought of the Pharisees. They were the respectable, faithful, church-going folk of that day. But that's who comes and is crashing the party. Later in the, in the letter that the church is going to write, they say they, they are troubling the mind, they're troubling your minds, and we didn't want them to do that. We didn't ask them to do that. And they're going and they're stealing their joy. And so as a bit of self-reflection, I want you to ask yourself, are you a gospel party crasher? And what makes you a gospel party crasher is that, is that you add something to the gospel because that's what they do. They show up and they say, listen, you can be saved by Jesus and with circumcision. Or later in verse five, they, it's always a moving target with gospel party crashers too, by the way. In verse five, it's circumcision and following the law of Moses. So it gets even bigger and heavier. Are you a gospel party crasher? Do you add something to the good news of the gospel, which is that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? Or is it that plus something else? You know, gospel party crashers, they look churchy, they look respectable. Maybe they look at their own lives and like, I'm bearing the fruit of the Spirit. I'm faithful. I show up. Show up to church. I'm faithful at my Bible studies. I'm faithful to speak up and to talk when everyone else is, when no one else is talking. I'm self-controlled. I'm obedient. But, you know, it's, it's not called the fruits of the Spirit when Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit. It's the fruit singular of the Spirit. In other words, if the Spirit is at work in your life, these are all the things that are going to bear out in your life. Not just the things that are comfortable with your personality or, like, way of looking at the world, but all of this is going to come with it. So that means there's going to be joy. There's going to be joy. And gospel party crashers aren't joyful. They are bothered Maybe they're bothered by the hand raisers in the church or the ameners in the church. Come on, y'all, frozen chosen. Call us that for a reason, right? Or maybe, maybe the, the drift towards contemporary music. They're bothered by it. And they cloak it, they may cloak it with a need for, a need for reverence and for real worship. But do you see how it's their own cultural norms for what, is real worship and what is real reverence and maybe those cultural norms are more formed by 18th century western hymnody than by the bible what about the fruit of the spirit of kindness you see gospel gospel wedding crashers or gospel party crashers they're really nice but being nice isn't being kind you can be nice and miserly you can be nice and roll your eyes at people or gossip about that lady who brought her kids in looking like that. Can you believe that? We should pray for her. <laughs> How do they dress like that or talk like that at church? You see, their cultural norms for the right way to talk or the right way to dress at church and that being the right way 
Sounds like the Pharisees, doesn't it? What about love? The fruit of love. Yes, a, a gospel wedding crasher, they, they, will, they love talking to you about their personal agendas for you or for the church or for the country. And they love you when your views align with them. But if you disagree with them about the definition of critical race theory or about vaccines or about who should be leading a Bible study, well, you'll discover that their love is actually conditional, which isn't love. It's based on you agreeing with their own cultural norms or their own sensibilities. It sounds like the Pharisees, doesn't it? So one of the questions that we need to be preparing ourselves for and thinking about as we're thinking about this silver vision process and being neighborly here on Silver Road, what happens if more and more people from 77055 start showing up here? And there are some here. I'm one of them. I live in this zip code. Um, and you may look around at our church and feel like, I, I, think, I think we are pretty representative of 77055. We are in some, there are some things that are true about 77055 that are true about us. The average, the average income, household income of 77055 is $130,000. But did you know what the, do you know what the median household income is? No, math for a second, one second. Me, the, a median number is if you take like all the sample size of data points, the middle data point is the median. The median household income for 77055 is around $40,000. So think about the gap between the average and the median. And one of the things that that means that we've learned as we've been studying our community is that the city looks at this neighborhood as a, as a middle class neighborhood. But in fact, most of the people in this community are far from middle class. And what that means is in that, with that gap of the way the city looks at this zip code and the way that it actually is, there are, this is a super under-resourced area in our city for people who need resources. And it means that there's a massive opportunity for a church like ours to participate in providing those resources. So what happens if some of our neighbors, more and more of our neighbors start showing up, more and more of our neighbors who in this zip code are 60% Hispanic? What happens if more and more of our neighbors show up here as we, as we try to serve them with the love of Christ? As they show up with different cultural sensibilities, maybe different attire, different worship styles, different political leanings? What will we do? Will we treat them as gospel party crashers? Well, what we need is some gospel security guards. So we see in the second pass, in the second, the second point, gospel security guards. The church acts as security guards here in this passage by affirming the source of our security. So the, what the church does, and this is, I think this is so wise. Paul could have been, hey, listen, I used to be a Pharisee. I know what's going on. I'm a missionary now. God sent me to, to be a missionary to the Gentiles. I've got the authority. I'll figure this out and tell everyone else what to do. He could have done that. But instead, there's great wisdom that Paul and all of the folks who were in Antioch said, hey, let's get together, let's send some people to Jerusalem so that all the apostles and the elders can gather and figure out what to do. This is kind of, kind of how we try to do church business here. The word presbyter in Greek is elder. So we're Presbyterian because 
we believe that the New Testament church was governed by elders. And so the reason we're Presbyterian is like, this is actually a pretty key text for us in understanding how do we do church government and how do we discern God's will? And so the church gathers here to discern God's will by the elders who have been governed, I'm sorry, by the elders who've been ordained by the church submitting to the word of God with the help of the spirit. That's what's happening here. And we hear from Peter and James especially, these two security guards pointing to our security. And so my my question for you is like, where is your security? One of our youth staff members was telling me that when they go to RYM, which is our summer camp, Reformed Youth Ministries, as it stands for, when they go to the summer camp for the middle school or the high school, one of the things she particularly likes to ask the middle schoolers who are showing up for the first time on the first night of camp is, is she'll say, hey, if, if you died tonight, how confident are you that you would go to heaven? It's interesting. She said, you know, there's, there's visitor kids there, but there's also church, our, our kids there. She says a lot of them will answer like three, four. Now, kids, I love that you, that, that's an honest answer. And that is a place where you should give an honest answer. And I love that you're giving honest answers to your youth workers. But I also, because I'm your pastor, I want you to be, answer, be able to answer a higher number than that, right? I want you to be confident and have security in what Jesus is doing. So the question is like, where does that security come from? Where does your security come from? Like if, some, like if somebody asked you today, What's your relationship with God like? How would you answer that? You know where my mind is so quick to go to when I think about that question? I'll start thinking, well, I've been reading my Bible pretty faithfully, but kind of slipped up for a while and I fell asleep again last night while I was praying. And sometimes I don't even pray. And, you know, I've been mean to share the gospel with my neighbors, but I just kind of don't. And, you know, I'm really... The question was, how's your relationship with God? And then we answer it by thinking about what we're doing. In other words, saying the basis of my relationship with God is what I do. But the good news of the gospel is that our security is not based upon our holding on to God, but him holding on to us. That's our security. That, just to encourage you about your kids, that's what our our youth workers said at the end of those camps a lot of times, those same kids are saying nine or 10 which is the Christ the King guarantee. Send your kids to the youth camp. But I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> but maybe you should consider sending them. Because you know, you know what happens there? They hear the good news of the gospel a lot every single day. And that's what we need to be reminded of because we forget it. We forget that our security isn't in what we're doing. And that's what That's what these gospel party crashers are trying to say. You're saved by Jesus plus ceremonial law. And the church has has already been confronted with this. Peter, who gets up and speaks, has already been sent a vision by the Lord concerning the ceremonial law. Remember all the way back in Acts 10 when all this food that would have been ceremonially unclean is shown to Peter and and God's voice is, rise, Peter, Peter, kill and eat. To this guy who's been practicing kosher law his entire life. And Peter's like, no. And three, he gets in a fight with God. He gets in a debate with God. Three times God has to tell him. And, and God says, what, what I have made clean, do not call 
unholy. God makes it clean. And Jesus, who came not to abolish the law, he says, but to fulfill the law, he's fulfilled all the ceremonial laws that would make us clean before God. So we no longer need that law, even though we learn from it, we teach it, all, we believe all scripture is important for us, but we believe Jesus has fulfilled the ceremonial law. And so by following it, we are not made righteous, but Jesus has done by faith in him. Through his grace, we are saved. And that's what Peter stands up and says in verse 11. We're saved by his grace just as they are. Three other times in his speech, Peter explores this us, them, they, we language. Verse eight, y'all, God gave the spirit to them just like he did to us. He's speaking to his Jewish brothers and sisters who've become Christians about the Gentiles, us, them. Verse nine, God made no distinction between us and them. Verse 10, why should we lay on them a yoke that we couldn't bear? We couldn't fulfill the law. We're not doing it. Why would we put it on them and say, this is gonna save you? That's crushing. Praise the Lord that your security is not in you following the law, but that Jesus has followed it for you. Praise him that we are saved by grace. Oh, I want you to leave knowing that you're saved by grace and to rest and abide in that this week. I want that for you. I want that for me. I forget it. We need to be reminded of it. And then James stands up. Now, when James stood up, the people, the Pharisees in the room would have been like, all right, here we go. Here comes our closer. James is gonna set him straight. I mean, if you read the book of James, James talks a lot about the things we should be doing. He talks a lot about obedience. But here's the problem for the gospel party crashers. Both Peter and James, the guys who are standing up and talking, they both know they need grace. I mean, Peter knows he needs grace. Peter, who denied Jesus, who doubted Jesus, who got called Satan by Jesus. Remember that? Jesus called Peter Satan one time. Peter knew he needed grace. James knew he needed grace. This is, this is not James from like the Peter, James, and John crew that was with Jesus all throughout the Gospels. This, because remember, that James was beheaded a couple chapters earlier. This is a different James. This is James who grew up in Nazareth with Jesus. He's his brother. And man, if anyone should have just kind of like gotten it about who Jesus was, wouldn't you think his brother who saw him for like 30 years fixing people's tables and just like being perfect? Like, don't you think he would have gotten it? But James, in the book of John, it says that all of Jesus' brothers doubted him. It says it three times in the book of John that Jesus' brothers, they're not, they're not on the Jesus train in the book of John. But now here is James and we see him multiple times in the book of Acts and he is, he believes in Jesus. And what New Testament commentators say is like what, what happened is that James most likely saw the resurrected Christ. And Jesus, as he did when he appeared before people, resurrected, was gracious to him. 
this brother who doubted, who didn't believe, who missed it, Jesus is gracious to him. So when James stands up, the person who's standing, just like Peter, is someone who knows that they're completely dependent upon grace. And James affirms that. He affirms what Peter says. And then James goes on to say something interesting. He says, listen, we have, the scriptures have been telling us to expect this. He quotes Amos 9 through 11 and 12. He says, the scriptures have been telling us that God is going to bring in the Gentiles. And because of this, we should be gospel hosts. Last point. James encourages not just, listen, he encourages not only those who are ethnically and culturally Jewish to be gospel hosts here. But then, did you see in verse, I believe it's 20, he begins listing off things that the Gentiles should be doing. Again, they've just affirmed doing this doesn't save you, but then he starts telling them to do something. Well, why are they doing that? Because James wants the Gentiles also to be good hosts to their brothers and sisters who are culturally and ethnically Jewish because he wants them to have fellowship. One of my good friends when we were living in Austin, we actually worked together with RUF. His wife grew up in Korea, like her whole life. She moved here to go to seminary. And so when you went over to the Wong's house, because we wanted to have fellowship with them, we adapted cultural practices that they had in their household. I didn't tromp into their house with my shoes on. Because that's not how they do it at the Wong house. Because we wanted to have fellowship with them, we adapted our own personal cultural sensibilities so that we could have fellowship with them. And that's what James is telling them to do. Listen, I want y'all to have fellowship with your Jewish brothers and sisters in Antioch and Pisidia and in Galatia and all these places. But you know what you're going to need to do? Don't eat food strangled with blood. They're not going to be able to deal with it. Like, I know, I know, but just love them. Love them. Like, he, tell, he tells them all the ceremonial law, even the one, you may look at when he says, like, sexual immorality and think, well, that's like more like moral law. Not, no, he's, he, that word porneia is referring to Leviticus 8, where there's all sorts of, there are moral laws in Leviticus 8, but also ceremonial laws about, like, hey, you shouldn't marry somebody who's this closely related to you. And that was just normal practice. In the, in the world of the Gentiles. And he's like, hey, listen, your brothers and sisters aren't gonna be able to deal with that. So adapt for them so that you can have fellowship with them out of a desire for fellowship. And you know what ends up happening, what this does beautifully? Because they're kind of, they're answering this question, like to be a Christian, do you have to become culturally Jewish? Do you have to, does your culture have to be obliterated and take on a, a completely new culture. But what happens instead, what they're being called to, is for their cultural identity to be crucified with Christ and resurrected to be made a new, redeemed culture in Christ. And so what that means is that Gentiles don't have to stop being Gentiles. Koreans don't have to stop being Koreans. They become Christian Koreans or Christian Liberians or Christian Egyptians or Christian Afghans or Christian Americans with all of her subcultures. 
And you know what this does? And, and by the way, we see this in the end of the Bible in Revelation 7, that all the nations are gathered around the throne and they're all bringing the beauty of their culture to the throne of God. And what this does, this richness and beauty and this unified diversity, it reflects the triune God who is not homogenous, but three persons in one God, Father, Son, and Spirit. The Trinity, who is united in the Godhead, but not uniform. And as the Holy Spirit-filled church bears witness to who God is, we bear witness as a people who are not uniform, but who are united in Christ. His body here on earth, with King Jesus as the head of that body. And all of us are gathered into the party of triune grace. And so what that means is that our God has accommodated himself to us. He's accommodated himself to us by revealing himself in his world, through his word, and ultimately by becoming a man, by becoming the word made flesh, Jesus. And he welcomes us into his party by grace. And it's so interesting, like we have to let him accommodate us. We can't, he has to accommodate us and let us in by grace alone, is what he's saying here. And then because of that, he calls us to become more like him. To become people who are willing to bend their lives, their customs, their comfort levels for the sake of loving their neighbors so that they too might come to know the grace of the one who made them. So let's be praying for how God is gonna do that for us here as a church, how we can accommodate our neighbors. It might mean that there's a few things that look different or happen differently as we grow. It might mean that maybe part of our fence comes down as we try to accommodate and create a space for our neighbors. It may even mean that we sing a song in Spanish sometimes in worship. We'll see what the Lord does. And I, we want to hear what you may think God could be doing through us as well. But the reason that we do this, y'all, it's not because we have to like somehow show that we are righteous. We have the grace of Jesus by faith alone, not by what we do. And so because of that, let's become gospel hosts as we've been hosted by him. Let's pray. Father, you who have hosted wretches like us when we did not deserve it, you who have made every accommodation even sending your son to rescue us, to redeem us, sending your spirit to fill us, to bear the fruit that we can't bear on our own. Lord, you who have made every accommodation for us, would you help us to imagine first that you've done that and to trust in that and to believe that. And we pray that in believing that, that you would shape us to participate in the same work you've done in our lives as we extend your grace to others. We ask that you do this for your own glory and not for ours. In Jesus' name, amen.